This is the coolest show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Aisha Siddiqua, welcome to The Coolest Show. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I know that I'm here uh, actually recording in the city of Boston, Massachusetts. I know you are across the pond (laughs) overseas. So thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. We really appreciate you for that. For folks who don't yeah. know you, tell them, who is Aisha Sadika? Oh, gosh, this is like an existential question. I've been struggling with this one, Reverend. Um, I, I think I found comfort in just the titles or what um, my community has, has given me. So um, who am I? I suppose I come from a tribal community up in northern Punjab, which is a state of Pakistan, and from a village called Motivala. Just a few decades ago, we were designated as a federal tribal community. And, and I was raised very much with the ethos of protecting the earth. Um, oftentimes, people, people don't do the courtesy of asking you who you are. They give you the title activist, kind of. And... But to me, um, defending life, protecting it, giving it back is as natural and as part of who I am, as walking is, as eating is, as breathing is. Um, And um, I think my role uh, for the temporary time that I am here is is to leave it a little bit better than what... uh, what I was given, and if I can't leave it better, then leave it as pristine as it was when when I had access to it. Yeah. Let me just follow that last thing you said: there, leave it better than when mm. leave it better than when you got it. What, mm. what does that mean to you when you say that? Actually, I think, um, especially coming from the youth environmental movement perspective we sometimes get a little too caught up in our youth in how young we are that we forget that we too one day will be ancestors and we have to be the best ancestors or good at least good ancestors and so leave it better it being the earth that i was given for free no strings attached Um, and all of that comes with it water food, shelter. Um, it's these basics that my community in, in Pakistan and even I live currently in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in Coney Island, which is a coastal community. And I, my house is 600 feet away from the ocean. Um, these basic fundamental rights that are, that are guaranteed just by virtue of being alive are not for all of us. Um, and so I like leave it better as in 
the children that come after us and those that exist um, have clean water, food, and shelter. That's honestly all Man. that I, I am fighting for. Well, I got to say this. Aisha, so people who who don't see you, I can see you. You're you're not an old person here. You know, you're not. You're not. You sound extremely, extremely wise, and that's wonderful. And you seemed very much committed, which I will get into all what you've done. Um, but it, it, does that feel like a burden or a blessing? I just kind of want to know that because I just, you know, I just, I just, as you started off. It's such a powerful thing. And this is for folks who, who can't see, who are listening. You're, you're, you're a young person. I know as far as, you know, your, your times run the sun, so to speak. But uh, your wisdom is coming from your dedication to fighting for your community and people. But, you know, how does that make you feel overall? Just like, you know, does that help shape you? Which is a blessing experience? But it could be both. Or is it also like a, you know, it's heavy. Because it's, fighting against some heavy things. Mm. I, I, I think honest answer is it's both. The against is industries that are much bigger than much wealthier than me, power that I don't even know how to qualify. It's, it's fossil fuel. It's the Pakistani army. It's the United States and its government and all that entails. And, and it is, sometimes it feels like a, a burden because um, so many times I have inadvertently and explicitly been asked like uh, the fight for climate justice or keeping what we call nature alive is a fight for, for this world. And like, how does one save it? And I, when I, when I was originally asked that question, I used to think of like the world capital, all the continents, all the countries, all the billions of people that inhabit them. And, and then it, it hit me. My world is very small. It's my parents, my grandparents, my cousins, my village, my house 600 feet away from the ocean. And the reason that is my world is if any part of it dissipates or is taken away from me, the world fundamentally, a world, will end. And wow. so um, it reduces that burden a little bit. Um, it is also a blessing because um, uh, even in uh, the community I come from, not everybody um, does this work. Um, some of us choose to, to leave and to do other professions like, and, and just, just have joy and exist, um, whether as like mm, going to college and becoming a lawyer or a doctor or whatnot, or uh, some people stay and they tend to the land, but like not everybody chooses or, or is given the opportunity to do this work. And, and for that, I'm, I'm very blessed that I have, I have my family with me. I have, um, like, other indigenous communities across the globe that I'm, I'm interlinked with. And when I look at, when I come to conferences like this, I'm in Bonn, I'm in Germany, I'm at the subsidiary briefings. I look in a room for their faces and I look for their eyes to find comfort and, and, and they're here and it makes, it makes this just a little bit easier. Oh, that's good. So, you know, I, I will tell you, I share 
that feeling you have. It is, this is, and, and I'm a little older than you, by at least, by at least a few months. A <laughs> <laughs> few days. <laughs> but I share, I share as an activist, um, I understand sometimes um, it is a, it is both a blessing and a and burden. Um, it's a blessing because we know that if you said we want to be good ancestors, but it's hard because then you're, 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 you're dealing with people whose business plan is a death sentence for our community. And we have to fight that regardless. And that's, we can't stop that. And it means sometimes that we have to put our bodies against the, the gears of the machine and bring it to the halt, even if that means that our, our gears or our existence doesn't continue because we got to stop it. So that's not easy, right? And so I just was looking at you as a young person. I was like, wow, that's, that, that's heavy, right? You know, so I just want to tell you, I understand. But I know you've also used that to organize. You, you know, in 2019, you have organized and lead a climate strike of over 300,000 students in Manhattan, which led up to the 2019 UN um, Climate Summit. So talk about what happened at that summit and what it meant to organize that many people um, in that gathering. We didn't expect it. We got a permit for 2,000 people <laughs> and, and 300,000 showed up. And so just a little bit of context, uh, 2019, I think internationally, was a like fulcrum of uh, youth mobilization and by youth mobilization i mean students aged like eight to, to uh, 22 poured out of the streets and in the united states it was um one of the first times kids this young uh left their classrooms their 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 desks to fight for a better planet or or or, or the planet life on planet and Internationally, seven seven million people within twelve hours were protesting. So imagine this: the sun rises in in the northern point of Sweden, and there's kids chanting, and it it sets in Sweden, and then you you keep going across the globe, and in Australia they're chanting, and in, in North America, they're chanting in South America, in so many countries in Africa, in Central Asia, East Asia. So for twenty, for entire twenty-four hours, that whole cycle, we were out on the streets, and mm -hmm. what we were asking for is, like when I initially started this conversation, right, to clean air, food, shelter for everybody, not just for the rich and white. Um. And I, you know, I thought that we'd done something. In fact, I, I'm, you can't see me for those who are listening, but I'm five foot two. I'm not that big. Um, the, I was with 12 other organizers, all 11 of them at the end of the march in New York, went backstage to figure out speakers and all of the logistics, and they left me in charge with, for the crowd. Me. And the only way I thought... <laughs> I could stop it. it was like I sat down, poured water over my face and just like tried to keep them from piling in the, um, the park because there wasn't enough space. But I fell down on my knees and, and I thought we had done something. 
I thought things would, were going to change, and they didn't. And our strike was on Friday. Immediate following, Saturday and Sunday, um, were the UN Youth S slash World Leaders Summit. And all the prime ministers flew in at the time. Um, President, President Trump was there. Uh, Indian President, uh, um, Prime Minister, I'm sorry, Chinese Prime Minister. I mean, Australian, uh, UK, they were all there. And they treated the thing that we had done as like a little, a little applause, a little blimp. And um, I think activists, if only a few hundred of us were allowed in the space at the time, the, um, I didn't, oh, sorry, Trump had put um, restrictions on the Islamic countries. So there was a Muslim ban. And my colleagues from Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Syria, uh, Yemen were not allowed. But those of us who were inside, were, we were patronized at best. Um, they had like panels and also rooms set up in the United Nations uh, trying to teach us how to be activists, how to, how to get engaged with media. And like, it, it was a really big letdown. And then two months later, a uh, COP took place. It was originally supposed to be in Chile. It, the Chilean population protested and it was then moved to Spain. And in Spain, in so many occurrences of violations against indigenous peoples and peoples of colors occurred. I mean, when we protested, they, the UN police came with batons and uh, they all ha- carry some sort of weapon on them. And they... They took badges away because we were linked arm to arm, chanting that indigenous rights should be in Article 6 of the Paris Climate Agreement. There were pregnant women there. And we, they were kicked out. Youth were kicked out. Uh, simultaneously, that conference. Now, again, a little bit of context is the conference of the parties is the international mechanism where all nation states come together and try to figure out how we're going to solve this massive issue of the climate crisis. There's a huge conflict of interest there. The funds to host this conference are coming from the likes of fossil fuel companies. So the Spanish, the, the COP that occurred in Spain was funded by Iberdola and Indigia, fossil fuel companies. And here we had our prime ministers and prime ministers of all the world talking about youth, talking about indigenous rights, talking about black people's rights, while fundamentally taking money from the companies that are actively and passively killing us. So, I mean, that's, that's how that unfolded. Right. And this is COP 25, right? This is 25. Yes. So I had to ask you this. So let me say this. So, I am a fossil fuel abolitionist. Yes. I believe that I'm, by your beautiful smile, I'm assuming you're also a fossil fuel abolitionist as well. So we share that. Let me ask you this question. Um, during the times of slavery, um, when they were trying to abolish slavery and they were abolitionists, they would not have invited the slave trader to the abolitionist meeting because they knew that the slave trader wouldn't have had good intentions. Don't you think 
that we should be smart enough that if they're inviting Shell and Exxon and Chevron and they're controlling these meetings, that maybe these may not be the meetings for us to begin with. Is that, I'm the, and I'm asking this because two things here. One, um, when I look back on 2019 and that time frame, I remember, to be honest, seeing predominantly young um, white children being pasted out front. And to me, there's nothing safer in this world than young white children, to be honest. I know because when I have gone to a rally, I went to a rally that was an anti-war rally. And then when I showed up, the tension this changed when a black man or a black person showed up. As a matter of fact, I was beaten at that rally so severely in the U.S. Capitol that they, they, they broke my leg, they shattered my leg because this, my blackness made it, made it so much. So when you talk about looking back on this moment, do you think that maybe because one, we weren't thinking about who was putting forth the meetings, you know, like Chevron mm-hmm. and Exxon on the other side, do you think that people putting forth their privilege is actually sometimes hurting the cause? Like looking mm-hmm. back on it, they were so much ready to put forth their whiteness to get out front, which is, you know, there's times for that. But in essence, may have hurt the fact that they didn't think those 300,000 people were ready to do some things to save our planet. What are your thoughts on that? So I have a few answers. First, uh, I am a fossil fuel abolitionist on the record. Uh, fossil fuel industry and sponsoring these events and conferences and a few hundred years ago we used humans as commodities they were used in this function of capitalism and and people's bodies were used as a mean of making more money the way that it is occurring today is different, but its end goal is the same. Fossil fuel industry is not passive. It comes with armies, it comes with guns, it comes with nuclear weapons. No product on planet Earth has the defense network oil and gas do. One has to wonder why. Can you think of any war that has killed, displaced, completely disenfranchised children and people like oil has. So to me, the older I get, it's it's become the other way around. Governments don't answer to, fo- sorry, fossil fuel doesn't answer to governments. Governments answer to fossil fuel. It is the language of money and power. It is what has allowed, in addition to other commodities, the United States and its likes to be at the top. And so on the point of like inviting a slave owner to an abolitionist meeting, these are not even abolitionist meetings. These are very much um, curated with the United States at events like this saying one thing and doing another. 
saying that they agree with the Paris Climate Agreement, saying that they are going to put funds to finance loss and damage and mitigation in domestically and internationally, and then doing otherwise, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane, um, the one that recently occurred in Puerto Rico. Maria. Maria. Mm. So these are meetings being initiated by the cops. The cop as in conference of parties, cop and as in as in as in the police. And then, lastly, the faces of the movement being white children. I think, Reverend, you are absolutely one hundred percent right. And and I, I've broken this down many times, and this is the conclusion I've come to: the climate crisis is not recent for recent for us. Yes, I by us I mean. Black people, indigenous peoples, and global South peoples. And, and it's not just the climate crisis. We have faced many a crisis and many an extinctions. It just so happens that we were not taken seriously 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Because for one reason or another, our blood does not seem to be red enough. When Syrian children washed up on German shores, they did not care. When Afghani children cried about their futures, they did not care. When Pakistani children and women and all the vulnerable said, our, our skies are being polluted by drones, they did not care. It took a blonde-haired, blue-eyed child to say, I have a right to a future for the world to mobilize. I think that says more about the world than it does about the child. I think it says more about who we're ready to protect than the people calling out for protection because as far as I'm concerned, as far as my people are concerned, we were never guaranteed futures. Fridays for Future is a paradox to me. We fight for a day, every day. And so I think, I, I suppose the global north and white people mobilized behind this because for the first time, they were facing an extinction that they couldn't do anything to stop. They were facing a threat that was bigger than them that they didn't cause. Or they did cause, sorry, that they, they caused. And, but there was no other person to point the fingers at. And um, maybe it has hurt, it actually, it has absolutely hurt the movement. Um, in the United States, at least, I mean, it's a really, really weird thing Um and when in history has has movements have movements been led by people least affected? We would have nobody like women's rights movements weren't led by straight men, and the LGBTQ movement it cannot be led by straight cis people. Why is the climate movement being led by people least affected? It is one of the few. It, it's a paradox. And so when that started being called out, that and by movement I mean. The young one that just formed around 2016, 2019, I don't mean the pre-existing one that indigenous peoples, uh, that that is part of their ethos and land protectors have been doing before there was even the, the title. Um, so those are my answers and unanswers. Uh, I just want to say my, 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 as we would say. I'm from Louisiana. That's why, you know, we would say, that's how we would say it, Aisha. I, let me say this to you. Um, you said something that was very powerful. 
Um, where has a movement been led by those least oppressed, fighting for their liberation and freedom? Um, you know, I, I don't, I, that needs to be looked at more closely. I'm not sure because that also goes into the, because how the movement was created. The movement also was created also intentionally not looking to be in solidarity with other movements at the time. And the, the black uh, power movement was going on when the women's feminist movement, when the queer rights movement, and other movements were being created at the in, in, at the beginning of the the modern name of the movement, say between 1968-1972. Um, that movement clearly made a decision, though, also that it also was saying that this was a movement that was for certain people. So, um, you know, we, that's, a, that's a conversation that we as a movement need to look at. Where, where does the youth climate strike movement stand today? I think um, I, the, I don't think the youth movement can stand on in of itself without linking with the pre-existing work that has been done, that is being done without also other liberation movements because then it becomes a very scary thing. If you look at it from the different angle, if you look at it from a different concept of future, one where only white children and the white race is being protected, that is scary. That means the rest of us will be allowed to die. It is changing. In the United States, at least. It is changing. It has to change. But... And in Europe, uh, I sit here in its foundations, its framework, the equation it was used has been, is being actively questioned. I'm one of the people actively questioning it because abandoning protecting of the earth because some people are doing it wrong feels like a disservice to everybody else uh, for me. And... Um, there's a beautiful African proverb that my friend Shia taught me, which is um, the elders lay the path and the youth run on it. As If we are obsessed with this concept of youth and future, one, youth is fleeting, it will leave us all. Do we have a framework and baton and like a trail for future generations to follow? I know not. Two, if we don't work with the people who have been doing this work before we were alive, it's not going to succeed. So I think it's questioning itself. I think it's, um, I'm, I'm hoping it changes for the better. I'm, I'm afraid of it dying out if that is happening. Um, because the other weird paradox is I suppose white people listen to white children. I suppose it pulls at their heartstrings. I suppose when they see a kid that could be their kid, they're ready to do something about it. Well, let me ask you this, brother, because you know you you live in in the great city of New York, yes, uh, in Brooklyn. You know what I mean, and and I know Brooklyn quite well. Shout out to all those listening from Brooklyn. Uh, 
I want to ask you this question. I was in New York for a climate conversation, and I was asked this question I'm going to ask you. It was by, at this conversation, it was not too far where Sean Bell was executed. Sean Bell was murdered on his, uh, at his bachelor party the eve before his wedding. He was shot multiple times by the police um, in a situation. And the people there were grieving that. It was not too, it wasn't too long after that. Mm-hmm. And I had to, they were doing a climate conversation. So I went there and I was one of the only people of color actually speaking at the climate conversation. And um, afterwards, a young man, I think he was either 12 or 13, um, in very much New York style, <laughs> came to me and said, Rev, man, I appreciated what you just said. He says, one, I wish more people look like you talking about this climate thing. I'm like, all right, right, well, I appreciate that. You know, all right. But then I said, hit hit me with this one. I'm going to hit you with this one, what it hit me with. Knowing what you just got finished talking about, our liberation, the the killing of black, brown, indigenous people, what fossil fuel industry does, white supremacy, all of that. Get me with this. He said, Red, but I got to ask you, why are you trying to save hell so bad? Why are you trying to save hell so bad? Mm-hmm. I should ask you the same thing with your wisdom you got now. You're, you're a young person. Well, all what you've been through, now that you know, there's got to be a reason. Because mm-hmm. why are you trying to save hell so bad unless something can change? Mm-hmm. First, I am really, that is heartbreaking that um, it's hell for a kid 13 years old. Two, I've seen it with my own eyes. And I was lucky enough to be in the United States when this was happening in my country. But when drones fly, there are limbs scattered on floors. There are heads detached from bodies and no amount of rhetoric or like wisdom, promise for a future can heal that ache that is, that changes you. Entire worlds end every day. But I am going to give you an answer that I've learned from the things that have kept our people alive, extinction after extinction. And it is not, it is not the tools of the master. It is the gentleness of the earth. It's unconditional commitment to give us everything we need for free. It's taking of all our dead, birthing lights again. And so, you know, I, I don't know who I would, like, uh, who am I to tell that kid that that's, it's not hell. But um, within it, within within this world, there's so many things I've found worthy to live for that are that are my community and the little moments of happiness in my community um 
not little, many moments of happiness, and the feelings of joy, of comfort, of liberation. And so um, I don't think I'm trying to save hell so badly. I think I'm trying to create some sort of safe haven, or not even create, but find it for us. And I, I mean, it exists within us. We have that potential, that power. There's a reason why um, yeah, the world of today comes looking at for us for solutions. It's because we have them. You're, you're a co-founder of the coalition, Polluters Out, which mm-hmm. started in January of 2020 um, after the, the failure of COP25. Tell us about the work and demands of the coalition. Mm-hmm. So, um, for full transparency, after COP26, we've kind of been on hiatus because that work was just so exhausting. So I am a co-founder, but we've currently, we aren't, we haven't been in action for a couple of months right now. So, um, and the work and the demands of ours were, we kind of, we saw this movement asking for things of like, listen to the science, system change, our climate change, a lot of just abstract rhetoric. And also focusing on carbon emissions and like things that I do not think of when I think of the climate crisis. And so we sought out, we followed the money. We sought out specifically the fossil fuel industry. Fun fact, um, the fossil fuel industry single-handedly produces 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, fossil fuel industry, I just mean 100 companies. And the demands we were asking is, uh, this conference of parties that you claim to host, well, you do host every year, that is supposed to be about solving the crisis. Why are the funds to, 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 to enact it coming from the people who have caused the crisis? So one uh, conflict of interest policy signed by the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework on Climate Change. 92 nations that, that United, uh, the United Two Nations that make up the the general party that can make the decisions, but in totality, there's like 167. And then the, also the nations hosting the COP. The COP is almost like the Olympics. Uh, nation states kind of uh, bet on it, and then it's hosted in a new region. So first and foremost, fossil fuel money out. Reason why. Uh, this is as important as a demand. Currently, the agreements that have come out of these conferences for the past 28, uh, 30-ish years have not explicitly called out oil and gas. Paris, Paris Climate Agreement, which is one of the few um, kind of that has uh, commitments in it by nation states, it does not have the words oil, gas, or fossil fuel in its hundreds of pages. So how... How can you solve the crisis when the culprit is not being named? The rest of the demands are also in the same kind of framework. Uh, get fossil fuel money out of governments, out of corporations, out of our universities. Um, and and um, buy fossil fuel money, Not the, it's not just the, the, the currency, it's the influence. Last COP, we had 500 lobbyists. That is more than any civil society delegation. That is more than any government delegation present. So that's that's kind of the work we've been doing. And we, we had a kind of a big success last call. 
no fossil fuel industry sponsored the COP in Glasgow. Now, petrochemicals and petro, uh, petroleum did, uh, specifically plastic, Unilever, Nestle, etc. And plastic, for those who don't know, is created using oil and, and fossil fuel and re- releases a lot of carbon. But explicitly, there wasn't any funds coming in. And that impacted the Glasgow agreements because they were more progressive. They were more robust. Just, just so you know, Aisha, I, you should know that the work that we're doing is around stopping petrochemicals. It's a real big thing for us. As you know, I'm from Louisiana, so there's a place that is called Cancer Alley because of all the petrochemicals that has literally shortened the life of my community, killing them. So I've kind of pledged to do all I can to fight that. So um, thank you for mentioning just the impact of petrochemicals um, um, and in that in, in what you just said. What is Fossil Free University? Um, and what yes. does the curriculum entail? And, 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 can I, and can I get a hat that says Fossil Free University? I, w- I want to get a hat here. <laughs> you want a hat? Okay. I, I, okay. I, can, I can make the hat. I just want y'all to be like, you, no copyright infringement. No, 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 no copyright infringement. If you make it, can you send one my way? Because oh, I'd love one. Oh, there you go. Oh, a t shirt would be nice. Oh, we, listen, listen. <laughs> we with it. <laughs> so, so, for the folks who don't know, what is fossil free and what's the curriculum? I've been giving you very long answers, so I'll give you a really short one here. Fossil Free University is an online platform that uh, me, some activists, and older older folk with knowledge came together to create, which essentially arms and gives uh, youth and those who want to be involved in working to prevent fossil fuel proliferation the tools needed to fight the fossil fuel industry. So it's a completely free online platform. We have a website. You can go through the course and some of the world's leading activists, members of the IPCC, scientists, um, lawyers come and, and give us insight on how they did their work and how you too can do your work. So this next question, well, one, um, we definitely, I'm definitely going to get you a, a either a t-shirt or a hat so you can rock that. And, you know, awesome. gonna, and I, so I can, I can rock it to us actually. So we're going to, we're going to do that. I want you to take this one slow though. All right. This is actually, I don't have many more questions. Um, I want you to take this one slow and think about this one. But I think it speaks to um, your generation. I believe for me, you can't, do this work if you don't have some kind of spiritual grounding. I'm, I, I don't, something, if it's, if it's Muslim, if it's Buddhist, if it's Christian, if it's Jewish, something, you have to, have, you can't, because if you don't, this work will consume you, right? And I'm seeing so many folks your age who are being consumed, who are talking about giving up. Mm. Even the most suicide mm. or not having children, mm. all of that. How do you use spirituality to keep you going, keep you focused? That's a beautiful question. And I think giving up is something that my community has never been afforded. It's, I, it's, never, it's, it's not an option that we take um, 
and the communities that are that are automatically turn to giving up. Um, I also think it's coming from a lack of spiritual foundation. And so I was raised with the ethos that the earth is a living being, that it takes note of every footstep you take on it, whether it is with when, what if that footstep is with arrogance or disdain, that it knows when you tread on it with gentleness, that it keeps a record, a history, a memory. And my people's creation story is one of spirits. Long ago, before we were given our bodies, we existed as spirits. And we were given the option to come to planet Earth as physical form. And uh, those of us who chose to got that opportunity. But when we go to sleep, our spirits leave our bodies. And those people that you meet in your dreams, they're actually spirits interacting with one another. So if people have passed away or somebody you're thinking about, it's your spirit meeting in a different realm. It also means that we treat the earth as a relative, as a family. The earth is as close as to me as I once was to the womb of my mother. The emotional perspective, the innate and also spiritual perspective is what makes this work not not like an active thing I'm doing, but my duty, like you know, like as pivotal as breathing or walking or eating. And I think when we frame it as a choice or this thing that you have to do or this burden, that's when you... You ignore the spiritual. You have as much as duty to the earth as it, it does, as it is given to you. That's how simple it is. Um, and I think, like, for your point on suicide, I will offer uh, a little, perhaps a, a little disagreement in that I've been doing work on climate anxiety and the effects na- lack of nature has especially on Aboriginal communities in Australia and Inuit communities in the Arctic and Alaska. And Indigenous peoples whose our, like our spiritual connection to nature is like, it's, it's, it, is, it is spiritual food for us. When that is taken away, the distress that it does is immense. Uh, suicide rates in Indigenous communities have risen so high and it's because we don't have access to the things that kept us uh, okay i I need you to tell us more about what that means you're talking about the indigenous perspective and 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 from a standpoint of how killing the earth is already a form of just like a dismantling and and suicide let's just get more into that yeah, and um, killing the earth feels like a killing of, of, of an extension of the self, of, of a family member, of a relative. However, I think despair and hopelessness, it's, 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 
that's too easy of a cop out or a way out, you know. It's, and maybe that's a little insensitive, but um, it's it's really hard to simultaneously see all the pain and hardships and things that the most affected communities are enduring, and then uh, simultaneously see um, like mass shooters use things like. Mm, overpopulation and the environmental crisis as a way of, of getting rid of people. That is something I vehemently disagree with. And I'm, I'm seeing a culture of like white people doing this. And it is so like anguish inducing and aggravating. Because um, uh, school shooters are saying like there's a there's an issue of, of overpopulation, too many children being produced, of of, of things like uh, we don't have enough space on Earth. And that is what, and that is comes from a mindset of of like scarcity, but like a like a colonialist. Um, there's not. Only uh, some of us can survive this weird Darwinism. Um, so th- that's my final thought on that. Um, oh, well, my, my dear sister, how can we, and anybody who's listening, how can we support you? How can, what's the best way to contact you? All those good things. Yes. Um, I can be found on Instagram <laughs> and Twitter. I love writing poetry and um, like little essays. And so if you guys want to read them, you definitely can. They're public domain. Everybody has access. But support. Um, I think sometimes it is taken lightly that uh, those of us who are involved in this work, it's it's not always safe. We're, again, fighting one of the biggest industries on the face of the earth for every one dollar we have they have hundreds for every one lawyer we have they have hundreds and uh, we might be use we use the last remaining breath our bodies against pipelines and gas lines and and protecting our water but what we need the most is when when things get that necessary that we need to like mobilize with our bodies please show up and support and we cannot do this by ourselves um if you want to financially support polluters out you can go on our website and again we're we're on hiatus right now we haven't started our cop 27 um, um, um campaign it will begin shortly um those of us i am at a conference right now uh, there's always technical issues but especially for those of us who come from like lower income communities or in, in color uh, people of color communities getting to these events and places is financially difficult so we have we fundraise and we crowdfund to get our members here and then you can also support us through that on, on our website oh, thank you so much well, i got i want to make sure i get this right where can people find your poems and poetry and do you if you want the floor is yours so if you want to share something right now you got it or Yes, you, this floor is yours. You want to share something? You got it? Or where can they find it? And they can read mm-hmm. it. So uh, they can find it on my Instagram. In fact, I would love to end with a poem. 
um, and then I have to run away to do another thing. But um, I wrote this piece kind of out of everything I've expressed to you, Reverend, and from, from love and pain, but it's called um, On Another Panel About Climate. They asked me to sell the future, and all I've got is a love poem. What if the future is so soft and revolution is so kind that there is no end to us in sight? Whole cities breed and bad luck is bested by a promise to the leaves. To withstand your own end is difficult. Anger against injustice makes the voice grow harsher yet. The future frolics about promised no one, as is her right. But if she leaves without us, the silence that will follow will be an unspeakable nothing. What if we convince her to stay? How rare and beautiful it is that we exist. What if we stun existence one more time? When I wake up, get out of bed, my seven-year-old cousin with her ruptured belly tags along, then follow my grandmother, aunts, my other cousins, and the violent shape of their drinking water. The earth remembers everything. Our bodies are the color of the earth, and we are nobodies. Been born from so many apocalypses. What's one more? Love is still the only revenge. It grows each time the earth is set on fire. But for what it's worth, I'd do this again. Gamble on humanity 100 times over. Commit to life onto life as the trees fall and take us with them. I'd follow love into extinction. Beautiful. And that's our guest today. Recognized poet and human rights advocate, Aisha Siddiqua. And I am Rev Ewitt, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you so much for being with us today. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know. 